Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you happen to be here last Sunday, you know that we talked about the end times. And uh, we said that some people can get really obsessed uh, with the end times, and it's because they think the Bible is full of hidden clues um, or riddles or puzzle pieces, and it's our job to put the whole puzzle together and figure out the signs and the prophecies and exactly when Jesus is coming back. But that's not how the Bible was written, and that's not really how it works. And in fact, last week we looked at some of Jesus' own teaching where he made it really, really clear, yes, he is going to come back one day, but it's not up to us to know when that's going to be. It's not up to us to know when the day or the hour that that will happen. In fact, he said we need to always be ready for him to come back. We need to always be ready and prepared. And he used one phrase over and over and over. He said, keep watch, keep watch, keep watch. Always be on the lookout. Always be ready for my coming. Now, if you happen to be visiting with us today, or maybe you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, um, you might be thinking, why in the world are we talking about the end times right now? It's December, right? This is when we talk about mangers and wise men and shepherds and a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, right? And we will do that. We will get there. We'll talk about that on Christmas Eve. But before we get to Christmas, um, as Jason said earlier, we engage in this very intentional season called Advent. And the word Advent means coming or arrival. And it actually is way more, or I'd say way less, about when Jesus first came as a baby in a manger, and way more about looking forward to the day when he will come back and make all things new again. And so we talked about that last week. We, we talked about a whole bunch of questions. The last question we discussed was, uh, what will eternity be like when Jesus does come back? And I said, it's not going to be uh, floating on clouds in heaven, that the Bible really never talks about life with God and eternity in that way. Um, it's not going to be a celestial worship service up there that lasts forever. Uh, sorry, Brian, Adam, but that doesn't sound super exciting uh, to me, right? And yet, many of us were told that. Many of us were, were taught that. We were given this idea that the ultimate picture or the ultimate goal of the Christian life is going to heaven when you die. And I know that should be appealing, right? Because God's going to be there. And if God can make anything great, he can make sitting on clouds, worshiping him eternally, somehow fun, right? I assume God could do that if he wanted. But that doesn't really seem very satisfying. It doesn't seem like it would fulfill what we're all looking for. It doesn't seem like it would actually speak to the deepest longings of our hearts. And do you know what it is that we all long for? Uh, we long for work that's really, really meaningful and purposeful. We, we long to create things that are uh, beautiful or bring some benefit into our world. We, we long to live in a world that doesn't have conflict between people, that doesn't have war or violence or hatred or inequity or racism or poverty or disease, these bodies that keep breaking down on us. We long to live lives that are not dominated by stress or anxiety or guilt or shame. We long to, to love other people without the barriers of, of fear or mistrust. And we, we love it when people love us that way. They don't fear or mistrust or judge us. And here's the deal. This is the kind of world that Jesus talked about. 
When he came and he talked about the kingdom of God, this is the kind of world that Jesus dreamed of. This is what he invited us to participate in. And this is what he said would one day become an ultimate reality. That eternal life with him is not going to be spent floating on a cloud somewhere. It's actually going to be lived right here on a new earth, in a new Denver, with new lives, the way that God always intended for us to live. And of course, we taste pieces of that now, right? We, we taste those moments where we experience true healing or, or true redemption or, or true newness or, or true wholeness. But when Jesus comes back one day, it will become a full reality. And of course, that all leads to one more question that we didn't have time to talk about last week, and it's this. Why is Jesus taking so long to come back? Right? If Jesus is going to come back, and when he does, it's going to deal with all of the problems in our world that we see and experience, why is he taking so long? If Jesus coming back is going to put an end to the war and the violence and the hatred and and inequity and poverty and all of those things, why is he taking so long? What's the delay? I mean, it's been 2,000 years. And it's not just us asking this question. In fact, Jesus' very first followers asked this question as well. Because when he left, he told them, I'll be back, right? I'll be back, right? Uh, He said, I will be back. And he said, just wait for me. And in fact, I've got a job for you to do. You can can go and be witnesses for who I am and what I've done in your life and what I can do in this world. And they were cool with that. They thought he would be gone a few months, right? Maybe a few years. And as the years went by, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, his earliest disciples, the men and women that were following him, were saying, what happened? Why hasn't he come back yet? And so the apostle Peter, you remember him, he was one of Jesus' most famous disciples. He actually, 30 or 40 years later, he wrote some letters to Christians. And he addressed this exact question because they were all asking, why hasn't Jesus come back? Here's what he said in one of his letters. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So Peter's saying, look, why hasn't Jesus come back? Right? People are going to say that. They're asking us this. Why hasn't he come back? It feels like time just keeps moving forward, step after step, and no- nothing is actually changing. And Peter acknowledges, it feels like the world is getting darker. It feels like there's more evil happening. It feels like the things that Jesus said are going to happen when he comes back are happening. So why hasn't Jesus come back? Look at what he says next. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So Peter is saying, Uh, Time works different with God, right? Now, just to be clear, Peter is not giving us a literal equation here. This is not one of those hidden clues tucked away in one random place in the Bible that we then take and we use it to solve a mystery in another place of the Bible. Like, oh, God created the world in six days. Maybe it was actually 6,000 years because now we have the equation for translating God days into human years, right? That's not how it works. This is just a reminder, That God has a bigger 
perspective. He has a different perspective on time than we do. He sees the bigger picture. He sees all of human history. And we think that we've been waiting a really long time. We think it's been forever, right? And God is saying, no, you haven't been waiting that long. We wonder, why is Jesus taking so long? And Peter is saying, no, 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 no. It's just that our perspective is really limited and really finite and really small. It's a bit like when you were a kid and um, your parents told you uh, you're going to have to wait to get something. There was something you really wanted and your parents said, you need to wait for it. And you waited like five seconds and then you threw a tantrum, right? Because you didn't get what you wanted. And now as adults, we know, and some of us are parents, we know that five seconds is not a long time to wait. You have a different perspective now. And that's what Peter is saying. It seems like it's been a really long time. And we're asking, why hasn't Jesus come back? But we don't have a bigger perspective. And then he says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So he says, you think God is slow, but he's not slow. He's just patient. And do you know why he's patient? Do you know what he's waiting for? He knows that there are still so many people in this world that he loves and that he wants to redeem and that he wants to make whole again. And God is in the process of continuing to make people's lives new and whole again. He's helping people turn their lives around. That's what repentance means. It just means to to turn your life around. And if there are still people that are turning their lives around, if there are still people that are open to that message that God wants to be involved in their lives, or maybe they haven't even heard that message or that invitation, then God will continue to wait. He will continue to be patient. But not forever. (laughs) Because look at what Peter says next. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, I want to take a few minutes to unpack what Peter is saying here. And we're going to go deep for just a little bit. Because something really, really important is going on in just these short two sentences. Uh, Peter says, Jesus will return. And when he does, it's going to be like a thief. Right? It's going to be like a thief in the night. And Peter could have added at that point. And that is a direct quote from Jesus because I was there. Like I was there when Jesus pulled all this together and he started talking about this stuff. And he looked us in the eyes and he said, it'll be like a thief in the night. And Peter probably could have said at that point, and he didn't mean like a literal thief. Like he's not going to actually come at night. He's not coming to steal our stuff. He's not secretly coming to snatch people out of the air. Right? He just meant that he's going to come when we least expect it. And he told a whole bunch of stories to to unpack this. And we always need to be ready. But Peter says when it happens, it's going to be quite a show. Like it's going to be huge. The heavens or the skies are going to disappear. And the elements of the earth are going to be destroyed by fire. Now, Let's look at that one phrase, because there's a couple of ways you could interpret what Peter is saying here. One way is that Peter is speaking literally here. That the world is going to one day literally be destroyed 
by a fire. And there's going to be nothing left. It's all going to be gone. And so God's going to have to, to make an entirely new heavens and an entirely new earth. In other words, uh, God is going to look at our world and it, it will have become so evil, so broken, so beyond repair. Right? You know how we sometimes look at appliances or something like that? It's like it is so broken, it is so beyond repair that the only thing I can do is to actually go buy a new one. It's almost as if God is going to see our world that way. It is so beyond repair that even he can't fix it. And so he's just going to have to throw a match to it and light it and let it all burn down. Or maybe it's not God doing that. Maybe it's us doing it to ourselves. Right? It's, it's not that hard to imagine with the number of nuclear weapons still in the world of us destroying our entire world. It's not hard to imagine with what we continue to do to our environment and global climate change that happens. It's not hard to imagine us being the ones that destroy our world. So maybe we're the ones that burn it up. But you could take what Peter is saying in this very literal fashion, whether it's God doing it or whether it's us doing it. But if you understand it that way, there's, there's a warning, I think, that goes with that. Because when we do think about it that way, it can produce a negligence. Right? It can produce this belief that, well, it's all going to burn anyways, right? I mean, it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so why care about any of it? Why care about the environment? Why care about this world? Why care about anything but people's souls, right? Because Peter said, it's all going to be destroyed by a fire. The problem is, that's not really the way the Bible talks everywhere else about creation. That's not the way the Bible talks about us and our roles of being stewards over creation. It's not the way that the Bible talks about God's love for his creation and everything in his creation. So I would maybe offer another way of understanding what Peter is saying here, a more nuanced understanding. I don't think Peter is talking about a literal fire that is going to destroy the whole world for a few reasons. Uh, first, it's pretty clear he begins to draw on apocalyptic language here. He's drawing on language that Jesus used and even some of the Old Testament prophets use. Isaiah talks about the heavens uh, dissolving away. Malachi talks about the day of the Lord when God comes back to the earth. It'll be like a fire will burn up all of the old and dead and dry wood. And so, it seems like Peter is just beginning to draw on some of that language, not because it's literally going to happen that way, but almost to give his, what he's saying more umph or more force or more immediacy for us. He also uses an interesting word here when he says destroyed by fire. It's a Greek word. It's translated destroyed in English, but it's the Greek verb luo. And, and luo rarely means destroyed in the way that we think about it. Uh, luo um, mainly means to set something free, to loosen or loose or let go of something, to unbind or untie or release something. It's used in other places in the Bible and other uh, classical Greek literature to refer to untying a donkey or an ox from a hitching post, to untying or, or, or un unbinding your shoes or your sandals, to releasing or setting a prisoner free. Now, it can also mean dissolve or melt or destroy something, kind of like you're, you're destroying or you're melting or you're, you're dissolving the chains that are keeping someone in 
bondage. And because Peter mentions fire, most translators usually use the English word destroy. It seems like he's saying something's going to be destroyed by fire. But when you understand that this word really at its heart has this idea of setting something free or letting go of something, it begins to take us in a different direction. It means maybe Peter is just using fire as a metaphor, which was actually quite common back then. Fire was a means of purification, right? Precious metals uh, were purified and forged in the fire. Think about a sword being hammered and formed in the fire. And here's what's really fascinating. Just a few verses after this, when, when Peter wraps up his letter, he basically says to his readers, he says, I'm just telling you the same things about Jesus' coming that Paul says in all of his letters. And do you know what metaphor Paul uses? When he talks about the day that Jesus is going to come back, a fire. In fact, it's so important, I want to read you exactly what Paul says about it, because it helps us understand what Peter is saying here. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, If anyone builds on this foundation, now, we just jumped right in the middle of the letter, this foundation for Paul is Jesus. He says, Jesus is the foundation, and all of our work in our life is built on that. So he says, if anyone builds on this foundation... Using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, capital D here, talking about the day Jesus comes back, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul is talking about the work that we have all been given to do in our lives. And he says, one day when Jesus returns, all of our work, right, all of the things that we have built our lives upon will be shown. Or revealed for what it is. And so the metaphor he uses is it's like putting materials through a fire, right? You put gold, you put silver, you put a costly stone like a diamond through the fire. What happens? It survives. In fact, it's even strengthened and purified. But you put wood, hay, or straw through a fire, and they burn up. They dissolve. They melt away. And so Paul isn't talking about an an actual fire. He's using this imagery to say, look, there are some things that you invest your life in. And they're good things. They're beautiful things. They're true things. They're just things. they're, They're solid things. They are eternal things. And they are part of God's kingdom purposes for you. And those are the things that will continue and endure into the new heavens and the new earth. But then there's other things that you will see on that day. Or just a waste of time. You'll see that they were selfish, that they had no lasting value, and they will be revealed for what they are. Like a fire reveals what's solid and enduring and what is not. Now, Paul makes it clear he's not talking about us going through the fire because he says we will all make it through the fire right that's not what we're talking about everyone makes it through in fact he says there's going to be some who have really nothing to show for their lives 
right? Nothing in their lives is enduring, and yet they'll still make it through. But it'll be clear. It was all hay and straw that they built their lives upon. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to get to the end of my life and feel like everything I put my time and energy into is just hay and straw. And it's almost like Paul is using this really jarring, in-your-face image to like shake us and say, make your life count. Invest in the things that are eternal. Don't invest in hay and straw. And now, if we go back to what Peter says, you can see it's pretty clear Peter is saying the same thing. Let's go back. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed, or you could put in there, revealed or exposed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it, literally, that's all of the works we've done, will be laid bare. See, I don't think he's talking about a literal fire. He's just saying, one day, like Paul says, all that we've done will simply be laid bare. It will be seen for what it really was worth. And I guess that could be scary, right? I guess that could provoke some some fear inside of us if I thought on that day I'm going to be graded on my performance, right? And I'm going to get a certain grade, and there's a certain grade I need to get in, right? But Paul's pretty clear, like some people are going to totally bomb this test, and they're still getting in, right? So this isn't about your performance. This is about the beautiful and just and true and good and right things in this world that will endure forever. And you have the opportunity to now to build your life on those things, to invest in those things. And then Peter wraps it all up by saying this. Since everything will be destroyed, or you could just put in there, laid bare, or put through this metaphorical fire, right? In this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and you speed or you hasten or you wait expectantly and eagerly for its coming. This is such a powerful question that Peter is asking for all of us. He's saying, look, if this is where everything is headed, like if we have a picture of where everything is going, right? And if we're going to take place in something new that God is doing, and if we're going to take place in, in God making this entire world right and new as it always should have been, if everything we do now in our lives is either going to endure into that or not, then how should that shape our lives now? What kind of people ought you and I to be today? The kind of people, Peter says, that lead holy and godly lives, which just means in a simple way, the kind of people who invest their lives in what God is up to, because that's what will endure. And so the question that I would leave you with today is simple. Are you investing 
in what is enduring? Are you building your life on what is enduring? Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would give us a few quiet moments now to think deeply about what Peter said and Paul as well. Help us to take an inventory of our lives. And God, we need your grace and your forgiveness when we realize there are many things we do, many things we give our time, our attention, our hearts to that, that are not worthwhile, that are not enduring. And we pray that you would give us the vision that you have, the perspective that you have, and that you would help us to want to be a part of what you're doing in this world that is enduring, that is a part of your transformation, that is a part of the new lives and the new world that you are making. Help us to see what you're doing for what it is and to be a part of it. We pray this in your name. Amen.